835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Ron Johnson coming up at 908, discussing, we will just talk about him with his, to him with his, about his reaction to the Senate health care bill, which was released yesterday. Um, Senate leadership would like to have a vote on it sometime next week before um, the Senate knocks off for a recess. Senator Johnson saying, wait, not, not so fast. And we'll be talking to him about that. And interestingly enough, um, there, his vote, always important on things, but there is, there's a majority. Republicans hold a majority in the Senate, essentially 52-48. Vice President uh, Mike Pence would be able to break any ties. But what that means is if you, if you lose three Republican senators, you don't have enough votes to get this through. And there's already four that either have significant issues with the bill as written or have issues with the timing of this. So we'll be talking to Senator Johnson at 908 about the future of health care reform. We start off today's program like we start off every program. Three big things. Uh, big thing number one. When will they ever learn? A couple weeks ago, there was a huge outcry after D-list comedian Kathy Griffin posed with a photo of a severed head of the President of the United States. Immediate backlash. Griffin lost her gig on CNN hosting their their New Year's Eve show. She had a number of uh, jobs that were were canceled. She then had this really pathetic news conference where she tried to you know play the victim card and accused her said that she's the victim. I'm being bullied because all these people are reacting to you know this thing that that I ended up doing. But the general reaction was you know even though politics isn't being bag, there's certain things that you can and cannot do, and you can still go too far with things. Well, after the Kathy Griffin situation, and this, this of course, follows up other Hollywood types who have uh, talked about violence or done things which arguably imply violence, you, you, had, you had the chickens come home to roost. You had the deranged guy from Illinois who had apparently moved to Washington, D.C. and was stalking Republicans and who ended up going out to that ball field, um, you know, a week and a half ago or so and, and shooting shooting the ball up the ball field, you know, shooting at Capitol Police officers and apparently very clearly targeting Republicans, um, at least one of the Republicans still in the hospital with critical injuries as a result of this. So you, you can talk about killing politicians and shooting politicians, but you wonder how funny that really is. Well, big story number one, American actor Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, uh, probably best known as Captain Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean series, which probably should have ended after three, um, but continues to, <laughs> Ando says after one. Um, yeah, that, yeah that, that you could make an argument there, but you know, it, it continues to kind of um, drag on. Actor Johnny Depp is in Glastonbury, um, which is in England. That's in southwest England. He's at an art festival yesterday, and you know he, he's talking to the crowd. And this is what he says. He says, I- I'm wondering, can you bring Trump here? At which point in time, people in the crowd start booing and jeering. And he says, well, wait, wait, no, you misunderstand completely. When was the last time an actor assassinated a president? I want to clarify I'm not an actor. I lie for a living. However, it's been a while, and maybe it's time. Well, okay, you, you, you don't have to be too much of a student of history to recognize that he is alluding to the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth uh, back in 1860. 
five. Um, he goes on to say, by the way, this is going to be in the press and it's going to be horrible. It's just a question. I'm not insinuating anything. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. His statements are, well, I'm just wondering, um, you know, when was the last time an actor associated a pre- assassinated a president? All right. Obviously, I mean, he, he was not in the United States when he did this, and obviously you have a certain freedom of speech. But what strikes me about these comments is these whether it's the deranged left or the Hollywood left, the Johnny Depps and the Kathy Griffins and the others of the world who just still simply do not get it. Was this nothing but a joke, ha, 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 or is it something that should be condemned as at least, uh, again, putting the idea into potentially incite violence? Have we learned nothing from the shooting in Virginia in Alexandria, Virginia, a couple weeks ago, was Johnny Depp out of line? And I'm not arguing for him to be put in prison, but he clearly thought he was being funny, maybe. Was this out of line? Was this disgraceful? Was it disturbing? Was it dangerous? Was it distasteful? Or was it just, oh, come on, you know, he, he's just making a joke. Ha, 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 let's move on. 414-799-1620, um, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did Johnny Depp cross a line? What do you think? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 841. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 844. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, the NL Central Leading Brewers. Let me say that again. The NL Central Leading Brewers. How good is that? Pay their first visit ever to brand new SunTrust Park tonight as they open up a weekend series in Atlanta. Jeff and Lane begin our coverage of the crew and the Braves at 6 o'clock. It is sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. All right, uh, yesterday, Johnny Depp, think uh, Captain Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean. He's he's in England. He's uh, introducing some film that he's in, and he goes off on a riff on President Trump. Can you bring Trump here? The crowd then starts booing. No, you misunderstand completely. When was the last time an actor assassinated a president? I want to clarify, I'm not an actor. I lie for a living. However, it's been a while, and maybe it's time. This is clearly an allusion to John Wilkes Booth, who was an actor, assassinating Abraham Lincoln. All right, now, I'm not arguing that he should be put in jail, but my goodness gracious, you still have the majority whip who is in the hospital recovering from critical injuries sustained in a shooting. Are we really are we really now still joking about killing or assassinating public figures? Let's start with Adam in Milwaukee. Adam, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Hi, Adam. Um, in Hollywood, they, they live in you know their little bubble, and they all valley validate each other's, uh, what they believe are each other's virtuous opinions. Um, but, but outside of that bubble, I think any reasonable person would say that's, that's just inappropriate. I, I agree that I don't think he should be put in prison, but at least we can all agree that he's an idiot. And I think we would also agree, as we guys talk about, uh, if the reverse were true, if it was said about a Democrat, oh. uh, people would be just up and oh, Well, yeah, I mean, right, I actually have a text that, that makes that, that same point. And Dan says, uh, if Depp had said this about Barack Obama, the media would have gone crazy with outrage. You know, ab- abs- you know, absolutely. But this is part of this ongoing pattern. I guess what's so bizarre to me, Adam, is that after the reaction to the Kathy Griffin thing, and after you know the shooting in Alexandria, Virginia, that these that some of these Hollywood elites still seem to think that this is amusing, and that here let's joke about killing public figures. Have they no shame? 
No, but that's because they live again in their little bubble where everybody validates their opinions and they, they, I, yeah. I think, uh, that, that's probably the reason why. Um, I, I agree with you completely. Thanks for the call. Lucy in West Bend. Lucy, you're on 620 WTMJ. I told your producer I'd tell you what I think about Johnny Depp when you tell me what you think about Ted Nugent. I think, well, what do you mean about, about, about Ted Nugent saying, that uh, either Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton should suck the end of his machine gun, making not so veiled threats to assassinate the then sitting president of the United States. And there was appropriate outrage with Ted Rose. Oh my gosh, Are Lucy! You? Yeah, absolutely. Were you listening? I, right. I've always said that I thought Nugent crossed the line on that. All right. Uh, absolutely. Okay, fair enough. Then I think Johnny Depp crossed the line, but I think a lot of what's going on. Does it strike you that Johnny Depp is kind of losing his luster as a star? Yes. And you said it yourself that Kathy Griffin was sort of delist. Yes. Well, what does that tell you? Well, you so you think they're just doing this to get attention? Um, I think that that's part of it, and I think I also think, in response to your last caller, that we are all in danger of living in bubbles. And as a person who tries to get out of the bubble and gets you know what from both sides, um, I think that the right is equally as guilty as the left of living in bubbles, and we all need to get over it and talk about serious things which I hope you will do with Ron Johnson. Well, I get and I, we will we will try to do the our best, but I mean I I think what has happened and there is no question in my mind that when Barack Obama was president, there were always there there was always sort of this kind of what I would call it like a lunatic fringe that was out there, the people who were obsessed with the birth certificates and things like that. And Ted Nugent is an entertainer. He was a guy I, I look, I never supported the boycotts of Nugent's concerts and stuff, but I mean his rhetoric, he was clearly out there, um, I, I think, trying to appeal to a certain crowd. And Nugent has even said that he thinks that he's got to dial down his, his rhetoric. I think he's starting to appreciate this. But the left has never felt that way. It's been this kind of unfettered thing that's out there. And I guess what really strikes me is that this is continuing to happen after the reaction of Kathy Griffin, you know, after the shooting in Alexandria, Virginia, that you have, again, some of these celebrities that continue to say this. Now, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just we're trying to get attention for ourselves. But at the same time, have, is there no sense of shame at all, especially given what is the climate nowadays? Is it really funny to joke about the president? Steve in Green Bay. Steve, you're on 620 WTMJ. Thanks for taking my call. I see. You know, first off, I don't think it's a joke. You know, secondly, I wonder when people take action. I mean, to me, this is as close to a threat against the president as you can get. Are we supposed to wait till somebody actually tries to assassinate Trump? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, this is just ridiculous, you know, especially coming from a waste of skin like this guy. Well, <laughs> right, who, who's failing? Yeah, I mean, again, the problem, thanks for calling. I mean, the problem is, I, I mean, I, I don't. I don't think this is the word I'm going to use is actionable. I mean, I think this is you. We do live in a country. Now, I understand he's making these remarks in England. But if he had said this in the United States, we live in a country where you get to express your opinions. And this isn't. I, I think that there, this is a vague enough thing. This is an illusion. This isn't like, gee, I'm going to actually go out and do it. So I, 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 while I think it is incredibly distasteful, it, it's not 
actionable in the sense that I don't believe that he has committed a crime. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we necessarily have to embrace this. Look, and there, there's just one story after another. You have the public theater in New York, which you know, stages Julius Caesar um, you know, and, and puts the Caesar character as a, a Trump lookalike, puts the Caesar Caesar's wife as a Melania Trump lookalike, and and then clearly is sort of reveling in you know the let's let's show Donald Trump being assassinated. Oh, isn't this great? And it took a long while. Now somebody found it was staged once during one segment in Minneapolis when they used Obama, and there wasn't any outrage about that. Well, I think it was a different time and a different sentiment that's going on here. But you have again the deranged left that seems to think that anything goes. I appreciate that Donald Trump is a lightning rod. I appreciate that Donald Trump is controversial, but at the same time. I find it more than a little distasteful and unsettling that you have American citizens, um, uh, American actors in this case, you know, going over to you know England and joking about assassinating the president. Now, do you put him in jail? No, but maybe it's another one of these examples of hey, maybe this guy has jumped the shark a long time ago, and people can in fact respond and they can make decisions by responding with your eyeballs and your wallet and deciding whether or not, you know, you're going to continue to support projects that Johnny Depp is involved in. Kathy Griffin learned to her, I think, eternal regret that you can, in fact, go too far. Now, like I say, she's trying to portray herself as the victim. I don't buy that. 852, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Big thing number two coming up. Stick around. It's 855, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Brandon Dassey moves one step closer to freedom after yesterday's victory in a federal appellate court. What's the next move for the state? Scafidi and Billstadt have the latest in this ongoing saga. That's coming up at 12.07 this afternoon here on WTMJ. Yeah, we'll be talking about that during the 9 o'clock hour. Matter of fact, I, I reached out. I reached out to uh, the Attorney General. I'm trying to see if we can get Brad Schimmel on the air this uh, morning. We had him on earlier this week talking about the Supreme Court agreeing to take the Wisconsin redistricting case. Kind of curious as to what the state plans to do. I think I have a pretty good idea of it, but um, we'll discuss that during the 9 o'clock hour, and they'll be talking about it on Scafidi and Billstad as well. Big story number two. Huh. A federal judge in Madison is upset because... Well, they are treating the inmates at a juvenile prison, the juvenile prison in Lincoln Hills, like they are inmates in a prison. <laughs> this this is one of these sort of amazing stories. Now, Lincoln Hills, which I, I think, honestly, the state of Wisconsin made a mistake a few years ago when they closed various smaller juvenile prisons and started sending everybody to Lincoln Hills. Why, why I think that was a mistake is Lincoln Hills is, you know, relatively, it's, it's remote. And I, I think, candidly, if you're going to try to work on rehabilitation and things like that, it helps to have facilities close to the areas where the kids are coming from, where the juvenile offenders are coming from. The problem that you have in Wisconsin, though, is that you have to work to get yourself sent to prison, either as an adult 
or as a, a juvenile. So the people that are going into these prisons are, are really the worst of the worst. And I know it's tough to say that about a 16-year-old, but you have you have 16-year-olds that, if not already career criminals, are well on the path to career criminals. And, and yet we have the system that wants to pretend that, well, it, it's the Leave it to Beaver or the Andy Griffith days, and we have to... And we have to just say, okay, well, these are just misunderstood youth. Well, okay, the people that are going to these prisons, they're, they're, they're not just misunderstood youth. They are extremely dangerous, hardcore criminals. And they are criminals that pose dangers to a lot of the other inmates and certainly to the staff. Now, I'm not going to defend everything that was done at Lincoln Hills. But at the same time, the reality is the people that work there and the state in trying to administer a juvenile prison have a very, very difficult job to do. So this federal judge in Madison who's hearing this lawsuit, um, and this is the same federal judge who's, in my opinion, been on the wrong side of a lot of different issues, he's, um, he's upset with the fact that they're using pepper spray and using restraints on a lot of the out-of-control juvenile prisoners. And the state says, look, we we understand that we're trying to do this. We're trying not to use restraints as much. We're trying not to use pepper spray as much. But the problem is you have got a dangerous criminal class of people that are put in there. I would like to see this federal judge invite some of these people into his home for, say, a week or so, and see how tempted he is to use restraints and or pepper spray on some of these violent juvenile offenders. So you've got a federal judge. This is big story number two. He hasn't issued the ruling yet, but signaling that he's going to order major changes at Lincoln Hills because the state uses pepper spray and restraints. Well, all right, Mr. Judge, you explain how you think these these different guards should control these dangerous inmates. And again, like I say, why don't you take a couple to your house and see how you can control them without using pepper spray or restraints. All right, big story number three, health care. We're going to be talking to U.S. Senator Ron Johnson in less than 10 minutes. Stick around. It's 859. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 909. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We are joined by the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, our dear friend, uh, Senator Ron Johnson. Senator, good morning. Morning, Jeff. How are you doing? I, I am well. Um, Senator, when you ran for election in 2010 successfully and then were success- successfully reelected in 2016, one of the centerpieces of your campaign was the need to reform health insurance and address issues pertaining to Obamacare. Yesterday, the the Republican leadership in the Senate unveiled their plan, and you're one of four Republican senators saying, wait a second, not so fast. What, what's going on? Well, first of all, I think that's a really good way of putting it, not so fast. Uh, Jeff, we are not, you know, I come from a manufacturing background. I've solved a lot of problems. There's a process you go through. I mean, you start with information, you define the problem, you do root cause analysis, then you set achievable goals, then you design strategy. In Washington, D.C., it's all completely backwards. And so we have not identified the root cause of the problem. In in Washington, D.C., they always throw money at the problem. And I think an awful lot of my problem with the Senate bill, even though we argued for the last two months strenuously, let's address the root cause of the problem. Let's let's address those forgotten men and women. You know, the the folks that remember Bill Clinton when he was describing this crazy system, 
said, you know, there are people out there busting it sometimes 60 hours a week, wind up with their premiums doubled and their coverage cut in half. It's the craziest thing in the world. We're addressing that with the Senate bill by throwing more money into insurance company coffers rather than address the root cause, which would be allow those individuals the freedom to buy insurance policies that suit their needs that they can afford. And so, you know, I, I, I am trying to do everything I can now with leadership. They say this is a draft and that they're open to uh, discussions and improvements. So I hope they're, they're sincere in that. But I really do think it's crazy to expect us to take a vote on a bill. We haven't seen a score. We won't probably see that till Monday or Tuesday. I certainly want to speak to Wisconsinites, hospitals, providers, doctors, nurses, insurance companies, uh, people that are insured, people that are not insured, people on Medicaid. You know, that takes more than a couple of days to really get that genuine input to convince me to vote yes on what will be a far from perfect health care bill. But, you know, I will not allow perfect to be the enemy to good, but I want to get at least get this too good. Mm-hmm. Now, Senator, um, I, I mean, I, I remember you know, earlier on, Republicans were very critical of Democrats when the, the state the line was, here, you know, we, we have to pass it to know what's in it. Um, what What is the urgency to try to get something done next week? I mean, why is there this pressure, do you, do you feel? Well, first of all, I think they mistakenly took up health care first. We, you know, we really did initially address overregulation, which I think is the number one problem, holding back our economy. I think the number two problem really would be having a competitive tax system. Had I been in charge, that would have been the next thing I would have done, and I would have been working over a long period of time trying to get the health care bill right. Uh, And truthfully, uh, Jeff, I would have also reached out to Democrats, pointed out the fact that this is a really big mess. These insurance markets are collapsing because of what you did. Help us fix this mess. Now, Am I under any illusions that they would do so? You know, probably not. Maybe a few of them. But at least we would have focused on what we should have focused on, the damage done by Obamacare, repair that, and then work in a very messy system, a crazy system, to start transitioning to a health care system that actually works to restrain costs. You know, these insurance premiums on the individual market, they've been artificially driven up. They've artificially doubled and tripled. We're not addressing that artificial cost increase. We're just throwing more money into insurance company coffers to bring the net cost for insurance down. That doesn't fix the problem. And again, coming from a manufacturing uh, base, I like addressing the root cause of the problem rather than symptoms because then you've taken care of it long term. Senator, um, I, I don't know that there's been a time in American history when you've ever had an entitlement program once enacted, it's ever been able to be rolled back. I think that's a point that Paul Ryan was making a while ago. It, it, realistically, are we going to see the entitlement program that, that is the Affordable Care Act rolled back? Uh, no. What, what we're hoping to do, and this is what I completely support with what Paul was doing, is take the management of Medicaid put that back down to the states. You know, like Wisconsin, we've done a pretty darn good job of managing Medicaid. Uh, we're the only state that covered that coverage gap caused by Obamacare in what the Scott Walker did, allowing people under the 100% federal poverty level to actually obtain Medicaid. No, no other state has done that. We've done that responsibly without going on to Medicaid expansion and, 
and literally spending money that we don't have mortgaging our children's future further. So, you know, I'm all for that. But, you know, you know, Jeff, I talk to audiences. I ask them, you know, show of hands, how many people would take away insurance coverage that somebody's obtained under Obamacare? Now, I've had a couple people raise their hands, but listen, we're a compassionate nation. The reality of the situation is once an entitlement starts, you're not going to take it away, but you can manage it and limit it and make it more sustainable than what Obamacare currently is. Senator, there, there's a number of people who, who believe that ultimately the, the thinking behind those who passed Obamacare was ultimately to force us or draw us into a single-payer system. Um, there was almost no support for this back in 2010. Now more and more so-called mainstream people are saying, look, we, we should just give up on like having private insurers. We should just go to a system kind of like Canada. California is even looking at that. But where, where do you stand? Would you ever support something like a single-payer system? Well, we know what that looks like. You can take a look at the wait times around the world. You can take a look at the wait times in the VA system, which is a single-payer, government-run, bureaucratic health care system. I talk to doctors who are practicing that system. Uh, they think it's a crazy system. Uh, when you take a look at what Vermont tried to do, and they backed away from it because they realized how unbelievably expensive it will be, you know, it will bankrupt California if they go down that route. It, it, it would further mortgage our children's future, and you'd have a worse result. So, you know, Jeff, we know what works in providing products and services. It's called consumer-driven free market competition. We've largely driven that out of our health care system. You know, in the 40s, 68 cents of every health care dollar was paid for by the patient. In the 60s, prior to Medicaid and Medicare, about 48 cents of every health care dollar was paid directly by the patient. So they cared about what things cost. Today we're approaching about a dime. And so consumers really couldn't care less what individual insurance products and services cost. They're highly concerned about what their insurance costs, but now you have oligopolies trying to figure out how to you know, make the market work, and they don't. It just drives up costs. Things are done to benefit for these oligopolies, government, insurance companies, all the middlemen involved in insurance. We actually did, I did, my staff had a project. I had them call up clinics asking how much they would charge to have my child's ear infection uh, diagnosed. And first of all, most, a lot of clinics couldn't tell us because there's no price transparency. But when they had an answer, then our next question would be, well, if we paid cash, how much of a discount? I think the average is about a 45% discount. I think the largest is about a 75% discount. That just shows you how screwed up our health care financing system is. But it's because we disconnected the consumer of the product from the payment of the product, and now we have this big mess. And that's my big problem with the Senate bill. We're not adequately addressing that root cause we're throwing money at it we're putting a band-aid over a symptom you know rather than actually going much further along the path of fixing our health care system i guess to that point senator um can we fix the overall system without also focusing on the spiraling health care costs not just you know how we pay for them but but also the fact that you have costs for prescription drugs going through the roof or the cost for these medical procedures going up and up and up um is that part of the problem too that somehow needs to be addressed no it is the problem and it's you know obamacare completely ignored that i would say you know, there, there's some measures, for example, the expansion of the HSA accounts. Again, that starts reconnecting the consumer of the product to the payment of the product to restrain the growth in costs. You know, we always use, Jeff, you know, example of uh, eyeglasses and laser surgery. You know, generally insurance doesn't cover eye care. But because consumers pay for that, the cost of Lasix has 
dramatically decreased over the last decade and quality's improved. That's what the free market, consumer-driven system does across our economy. But take a look at the Internet of Things. That's private sector, consumer-driven competition and innovation. Uh, we have innovation, some of it in healthcare, but we have an FDA that crushes innovation in terms of development of drugs, costs $2.5 billion per drug that's finally approved, takes about 14 years for a new drug to be discovered and come to market. That's what government does in terms of kind of crushing the benefits in the marvel of a free market competitive system. We're talking to Senator Ron Johnson. Senator, um, do you anticipate that any final, whatever final version of the bill comes out of the Senate, do you anticipate that it will continue to contain both the individual and the employer mandate requiring individuals to have insurance or pay a tax penalty and requiring um, employers to offer insurance or pay a tax penalty? No, those will be gone. L- listen, there are a number of good things in both the House bill and the Senate bill. That's certainly one of them. No, we will be repealing you know, quite a few elements of Obamacare that are very harmful. Uh, those will be two that will definitely be gone. Um, so if you were looking into your crystal ball, would it be fair to say you think it's unlikely that there's going to be a Senate bill that is passed by, say, the end of next week? Uh, you know, Jeff, I really can't uh, say I'm, I'm hoping we take a little bit more time. Uh, but, but I'll never say never. You know, I, I'm working hard uh, to gather that information. I'm making phone calls all over the place today and tomorrow and Sunday. I'm talking to people and trying to get that input just in case they force a vote. Uh, but, but I really hope leadership kind of takes a step back, does discuss, you know, the shortcomings in the, this bill, does work to improve it. So in the end, uh, you know, if I decide to vote for it and, and I want to vote for it because I will in the end evaluate, is this better than where we currently are? Is this continuous improvement? Again, that's just part of my, my manufacturing background. I want to do everything I can to continuously improve not only the health care system, but this bill. Senator, before I let you go, let me ask you about one other thing. Um, last week, there was the tragic shooting in, in Washington, D.C., where clearly it appears that a deranged gunman was, was targeting um, certain Republicans. Um, what, what is the mood like with regard to security? Is, is it a different time now? And how do you personally feel when you when you go out in public? Because I know you don't have a security detail with you when you when you attend events. Well, we're beefing up security. We we had a we had a, a all member meeting. Uh, we talked to the sergeant at arms. It's one of the things we talked about. I, I actually proposed maybe maybe we need to pass a bill so people realize that uh, there will be be beefed up security. I mean, the, the last thing you want is to think you know, have people think that that we're not going to have additional security. I think moving forward, we almost have to, not, not only protect members of Congress, but how about our audiences as well? So uh, that, that, that is going to change, and it has to change, because we, we just can't have uh, you know, members of the public targeted in those types of venues. Uh, Senator Johnson, thanks so much for spending some time with me this morning. I very much appreciate it, and hope to talk to you very soon. Have a great day, Jeff. Okay, take care. That's Senator Ron Johnson, the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin. Let, let me, again, as I, the point I was making earlier, I mean, Senator Johnson's support for whatever happens is, is crucial. And, and, and he's a guy, and I have known him since he started running for office the first time. Um, he's been deeply concerned about the health care system. He recognizes that the Affordable Care Act, I, I think, is unsupportable. Um, again, the devil is, is in the details, and he's somebody who I think takes these issues seriously and is very sincere in his efforts to try to say, hey, we want, we want the best possible bill we can do. His vote is very key, because like I was saying earlier, you, you have 
52 Republicans in the U.S. Senate. You're not going to get any support from the other side. So that means that if Republican leadership wants some version of a bill to pass, that they really they can only lose effectively three votes. There's already four Republican senators, including Senator Johnson, who are saying not so fast. Um, we we want to we want to be able to process this. We want to make sure we know what's in it, and we want to try to make improvements. So um, whether it happens next week or it happens a month and a half from now, I, I think Senator Johnson's going to end up being a leader on this. But those are some of the concerns um, that I think he has with it. And, uh, again, if, if you lose Ron Johnson, you're, you're, you're pretty much assured that you're going to lose the majority. So um, he's going to be a key player in this, no question about it. It's 923. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 925, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The, the, the Senate bill that, that's come out is similar in some fashions to what came out of the House, but there are some changes. Um, here's just a, a couple of, a, a couple of the things that, that people will be unhappy about, or at least some people will be unhappy about. That is that the, the subsidies, for example, the money that the, the taxpayers give certain people in order to help them pay for health insurance, that, that is going to be cut back moving over time, particularly for the people that, that make more money. For example, you can make up to like $84,000 for a family of three and still receive some sort of subsidies towards your insurance. That is going to be rolled back. Um, older people, it will be possible for them to be charged more. Um, right now, I think under Obamacare, the limit is you can't charge somebody who is older more than three times what you charge somebody who's younger. That's going to go up, I think, to, to about five times, recognizing that people who are older are much more likely to um, be using uh, again, aspects of health care. The key thing that I was curious about, and I asked Senator Johnson, right now there is an individual mandate. People have to buy insurance. If you don't buy insurance, you, you have to pay a penalty. If your employer is of a certain size and doesn't offer you insurance, uh, the employer has to pay a penalty. The problem, of course, is, first of all, that there's lots of people who decide that they don't, they just don't want insurance, they're willing to take the risk, or what happens a lot of times is the premiums that they have to pay under these Obamacare policies are so large that it really doesn't make any sense for them to have to take one of the Obamacare policies because they'd be much better essentially just self-insuring themselves. In addition, the penalties are so low that there's really not an incentive. I mean, many people just say, hey, it just makes more sense to pay the couple thousand dollars or whatever the fine is. In both the House version of the bill and the Senate version of the bill, the, the insurance mandate would be eliminated. People would be encouraged, though, to buy insurance because of the cost of getting back in. One of the problems, we talk a lot about pre-existing conditions. You know, somebody who, I don't know, somebody who has a catastrophic illness, you've got a cancer diagnosis, and the concern has always been, hey, you've, you've, been in, you've had health insurance for 20 years, you've lost your health insurance because you lost your job, you're diagnosed with stage four uh, cancer, 
and, and then you, you can't get coverage and you need all the, this treatment. Well, that's something that I think everybody thinks, no, the system needs to address this. So the problem has always been, how do you try to figure out how to make people carry insurance? Because if you only wait till you get sick and then you buy your insurance, all you're going to have is a pool of sick people that are there. You're not going to have enough money on the other side. So this tries to maintain the pre-existing illness coverage but also encourage people to carry insurance by saying, hey, if you do get sick, the costs are going to go up dramatically. Those are just some of the highlights. 936, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, the WTMJ Classic Free Ride, um, makes a pit stop again tomorrow. Join the voice of the Packers, Wayne Larrabee, at Pella Window and Doors in Brookfield from noon until 2. He'll be registering you for your chance to win the incredible 1968 Valenti Oldsmobile 442 convertible. That's tomorrow afternoon, 12 to 2, Pella Windows and Doors on Capitol Drive in Brookfield with the voice of the Packers, Wayne Larrabee. It's the WTMJ Classic Free Ride, sponsored by New Mail Medical and Tosa in out New Mail Medical um, in Tosa and Summerfest. All right, one final thought on the um, what needs to happen with the Affordable Care Act. I, I uh, a friend of mine forwarded me an email, and I'm not going to identify this particular friend, but I do want to share a portion of the email with you. Um, I, for my entire adult life, I have always gotten insurance. I've always been insured, um, and I've always gotten it through my employer. I worked for the federal government, worked for a private law firm, worked at WTMJ. So I've never been in the private health care market. Um, I have a friend who for their entire life, they, they've they always gotten insurance through the they've, various employers because of the nature of the industries they've worked in. The employers haven't provided health insurance. So they've always been in the private market. And for years and years and years, my friend was, was telling me they, they've never had they never had any problem at all. It, it went for for decades. They, they, you know, they had an insurance agent. You know, they would shop around. They'd find all these different health plans that were available. They could pick the one that was best for them. And you know, and of course, nobody likes paying health insurance premiums and things like that. But they were able to pick the type of plans they wanted and, and pay for it. It was fine. That, of course, all changed after Obamacare. Um, essentially, the private insurance market disappeared, and you had these Ob- Obamacare exchanges with all the different requirements and all the rules, and it has been an absolute nightmare for my, my friend, and I think it's probably been a nightmare for a-, a lot of people. Increased premiums, but more importantly, fewer and fewer choices. Instead of what happened pre-2010, being able to go out and to shop around, and this is what Senator Johnson was talking about, instead of being able to go out and shop around and find you know, a plan that fit you with different options, I mean, maybe you don't want to be just stuck with one health care network. No, no offense to Aurora, no offense to Freighter, no offense to Columbia St. Mary's or whatever, but, but maybe you want a wider variety of choices. And, and pre-Obamacare, you could do that. You, you could find, hey, this particular plan offers three different networks. I can make my choices. Okay, that, that has all now changed, and it has been a nightmare for a lot of people. So my friend sends me this note this morning saying, this is the third time I have been canceled since the Affordable Care Act. And you think, okay, you're, you're getting insurance canceled. Is it because you've got too many claims or whatever? Now, let me read you a portion of the, the email. My, my friend was covered by Anthem Blue Cross. 
Um, I'm sending you this following information, which just announced by Anthem. We had previously communicated with you about the continued challenges we face with the private individual health insurance market as a result of the Affordable Care Act. That is Obamacare. Today, we, and this is from their insurance agency, essentially. Today, we received an advance notice that your individual health insurance carrier, Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Wisconsin, will be withdrawing from the Affordable Care Act individual health insurance market in the state of Wisconsin in 2018. What this means is that your present plan will expire on December 31st, 2017, and you will not be offered the option of renewal. You'll be receiving a formal notice from Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield regarding the decision to pull out of the individual market in Wisconsin and the expiration of your present health contract at the end of the year. At this time, we do not know who the remaining individual health insurance carriers will be for 2018. We do know that open enrollment for 2018 will run from November 1st of 2017 through December 15th of 2017. Carriers who intend to participate in the individual market in Wisconsin for 2018 must file their initial rates and plans by July 8th. So another, I mean, just before I continue, so let me, okay, here, here, this is my friend who's been, uh, again, paying for insurance out of their own pocket for decades, who had no problems at all, all the different choices before Obamacare, now has seen the various choices that are available to them disappear. Um, plans are being canceled. Your choice and your ability to pick what doctor you want to go to, that, that is gone. I mean, what a nightmare. And now you're in a situation where, okay, your health insurance is being canceled. It's being canceled. And we can't tell you, you know, what other options you're going to have or how much it's going to cost right now. Um, let's see. The email continues. We will continue to communicate with you as developments occur. I'll be sending you a follow-up email to identify your physician health care. This will help us guide you in the remaining character care carriers since all individual health plans now contain a narrow list of network providers yeah all individual health plans now contain a narrow list of network providers if you like me are you know have an employer that provides your insurance i'm not stuck in one particular network i i have i have the various choices and i will tell you something that that is a that is a key thing that's where i mean th- these for those of you who are stuck in the Obamacare exchanges with no choices, that is extremely frustrating. A couple years ago, when my late wife got a catastrophic diagnosis of cancer, it was a blessing to be able to say, okay, I'm going to investigate different health care networks. I want to, we want to go to the, the network that we, we want to go to, the facility, we want to find the doctors that we think can best treat this catastrophic diagnosis. I mean, and, 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 and we did. You know, we, we, had, we had different choices. You know, within, there were various networks that you could get into. We had various choices. You know, that was a blessing. You got to research the stuff, got to pick these things out. Um, if you are stuck in the Affordable Care Act exchanges, you don't have that ability because these insurance plans, not only are they incredibly expensive, not only do they have di- high deductibles, but in most cases, as it says here, um, they, they just, they're, they're very narrow. Individual health plans now contain a narrow list of network providers. Um, I understand, and the note continues, I understand the importance of having a quality health insurance plan that provides access to your preferred health care providers. Unfortunately, the continued erosion of the individual health insurance market will make this a challenge. All right.
I mean, here's the bottom line of all of this. We, back in 2010, we had issues. I, I appreciate, as I was saying earlier, that there was an issue with pre-existing coverage, you know, the pre-exist, with the pre-existing conditions. The fact that, you know, somebody who had had insurance all their life that gets this catastrophic diagnosis is, isn't able to, you know, get coverage anymore. I, I understand that. We had problems with the old system. But in blowing up the old system to address certain problems, you have created a myriad a myriad of other problems. Again, this is my, my friend who's done everything right, who wants to have insurance, who was fine before 2010 on the individual market for decades, buying insurance, making the choices, getting the type of coverage that was necessary for them, and that entire thing has been changed. Barack Obama lied when he said that you could, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. No, that, that's not the case. And it is getting worse, and it is getting worse. And in our effort to say, okay, well, you know, we're, we're providing birth control coverage for some people, the bottom line is you're creating this incredible disruption for a lot of other people. I hate the cliche, we threw the baby out with the bathwater, but that is clearly what we did. And that is why you need, there is such an urgency to fix the mess that is the Affordable Care Act. And I understand there's some people for whom it's a godsend, we're now able to get insurance, but for a lot of other people, it is a nightmare and it is an ongoing nightmare. Dave in West Dallas. Dave, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, good morning. I'm listening to your program with interest here. My question is, I'm a retired municipal employee, and our medical coverage, if you will, runs through March 31st. Now, what I'm hearing from you is at the end of December, if this coverage is uh, canceled, what do we do for the three months in the interim? Yeah, well, I mean, do you have – well, this is only – this is only, I mean, this is only, Anthem is pulling out. So, I mean, I don't I don't know, do you have yours through Anthem or in the individual market? This is only Anthem. Um, there's going to be well, other. Anthem is my secondary. Yeah, I, again, and I don't, well, okay, Anthem is, Anthem is only, pull, I mean, thanks, I mean, I, what I'd say is uh, contact your administrator, okay? I, I don't, uh, my understanding is Anthem is only pulling out of, the individual Affordable Care Act um, market. Anthem isn't pulling out of any group insurance that they may offer. Anthem, you know, isn't pulling out of like their their Part B, you know, Medicare coverage or anything. It's just the individual health insurance market when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. That's that's the only thing that they are pulling out of. But again, I'm I'm not trying to play insurance expert on the radio. I'm just I'm sharing this email just for the point of suggesting that. Something's got to be done for everybody who's out there saying, well, I don't like the reforms. I, I, I want to keep this like it is. What you need to realize is what there is now isn't working out. It's just simply not. 947, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 950, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I got distracted. I got on my high horse on that. But it just, it's just, Ron from Janesville sends me a text. Jeff, I'm self-employed. My insurance has doubled since the Affordable Care Act. I now pay $1,000 a month 
with a five thousand deductible for just my wife and I. It is becoming unsustainable. I'm thinking about dropping my insurance. Yeah, that's what see, that's what's going on extensively here. I mean a lot of people and I know, I mean, a lot of people just end up doing the math. They say, okay, if I don't carry insurance, if, if I carry, I've got crappy coverage under Obamacare. Um, so what happens is I have to pay X amount, X thousands of dollars to have the insurance, especially if you, especially if you make more than like 40 grand a year or so. So you're not getting any substantial subsidies. It's one thing if you're low income and you've got the taxpayers that are paying the whole freight for it, but it's another thing for everybody else that has to, you know, pay for some or all of it. Um, you know, incredibly high premiums, um, incredibly high deductibles. Um, wouldn't we be much better off allowing those people just to kind of make the decision and say, okay, we're going to give you an option for the catastrophic coverage and all? But people end up doing the math, and they say it just by – the, by the time I get done looking at how much I'd have to spend to pay the deductible and how much the crappy insurance is going to cost in the first place and the fact that I'm limited, limited as to the doctors that I can use, that the healthcare network I can go to, I can only go to X network instead of X or Y or Z networks, they just make the decision to say this is not worth it. And again, I, I understand you have to figure out a way to take low-income people who have been priced out of the healthcare market and give them access to affordable insurance. Okay, but there's got to be a way to do that without just completely, totally penalizing and messing over all the other people who for decades were doing fine, like the different choices, like to be able to call up a health care you know, an insurance agent and say, okay, this is what my needs are. What are the different plans that you have available? And that health care insurance, that the, then the insurance agent would look around. Oh, we've got you know, this company that, that's doing this, and we got this company that's offering that. And what do you need? And what sort of coverage do you need? And, you know, how much would you like to pay in premiums? And what are you willing to have on your deductibles? All those different types of things. But we have taken that away from people. And a lot of people are understandably unhappy about it. Now, the only reason there is not a complete and total revolt on this is because, again, the, the individual health care market is a very small segment of the overall insurance market. The majority of people in this country still either are covered through Medicare, they're over 65, or like me, you get your insurance provided by your employer. So the individual health care market is still a relatively small slice. But those people who are responsible, who've been in it for years, are getting absolutely and totally screwed over. And something has to change, and it needs to change right away. 954, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 956, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, Hondo. You are familiar with all things technological. Do you know what the term? Do you know what neighborhood spoofing is? You are unfamiliar, and not, not spoofing like when Jane Matinair teases me mercilessly as she does from time to time. Now, here, here's the deal: neighborhood spoof. If you've ever gotten one of those calls on your cell phone, and it, it comes and it shows up like the caller ID shows up a number that you don't recognize, but it's got your area code and maybe the first three digits of of your phone number. That's called neighborhood spoofing. Um, it is this technology that telemarketers have that includes local area codes and the first three numbers of your own phone number. So it looks like it's something from your neighborhood. 
You know, you're like, okay, th- it's it's not like you're getting a call from Anchorage, Alaska. You're getting a call, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, West Dallas, Wisconsin, 414, and then 963, whatever that would be. So you think, hey, this is a local call. Well, it's not. This is what's called neighborhood spoofing, and it's a techno- technological thing that makes you think, hey, it's a, this isn't a telemarketer. This is a local call. There is this company. It's uh, run by a guy named Adrian Abramovich out of Miami, Florida. He does business as marketing strategy leaders. He made 96 million spoofed robocalls during a three-month period at the end of 2016 using this neighborhood spoofing technology, which induced people, you're just more likely to take the call if you think it's coming from you know one of your local phones. Upon answering, recipients would hear a recorded message asking them to press one to hear about vacation deals from travel companies. Callers were then transferred to call centers in Mexico where live operators would try to sell them vacation packages at Mexican timeshare facilities not affiliated with companies in the recorded message like the message would say hey we're offering you these travel deals to marriott or hilton or TripAdvisor or whatever you push one and you end up talking to somebody in mexico who's trying to sell you timeshare stuff and a lot of people apparently guppied on this um the fcc yesterday hit this robocaller with its largest ever fine they find them a hundred and twenty million dollars they say these robocalls disrupted an emergency medical paging provider by overloading the paging network. Um, so they went after it. Um, they say robocalls rank as the top consumer complaint, complaint received by the FCC. Um, and so they're, they're trying to stop it. But the FCC is saying, hey, we, we find the cheese out of these people. But, it, you know, there's so much money to be made. There, there's only so much we can do. But a $120 million fine for neighborhood spoofing. If you get that call on your cell phone and you don't recognize it, even if it's got your area code and even if it's got the first, again, three digits of your cell phone number, be, be wary you are probably, if you don't recognize that number, it's a robocall. You are being neighborhood spoofed. And um, just buyer beware. It's 959. It's 1008. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Glad to have you with us. Yesterday afternoon, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, in an extensive decision by a two to it was a panel of the Court of Appeals, by a two to one vote, um, they upheld a decision out of. Milwaukee, finding that the confession that Brandon Dassey, the nephew of Stephen Avery, made was essentially coerced and involuntary and um, supported that and have given the state, well, um, a limited time to either decide whether to appeal or retry Brandon Dassey. We are joined now by the Attorney General of the state of Wisconsin, Brad Schimmel. Mr. Attorney General, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. First of all, let me ask, I'm going to be honest with you. I was, I've read the entire decision I was a little bit surprised that uh, in the reasoning of the court, and I was surprised at the result. What was your reaction to the decision from the panel yesterday? Well, I, I had the same reaction. And if you read the dissent, it's a pretty concise look at what we think is the actual law relating to this and a, a reasonable application of the facts to the law. When, when you see a court of appeals write a decision that is so long as this one, it's often a sign that they're just reaching to get to an end result they wanted to get to and trying to find a way to to justify it. And that, that's our view. Um, you know that the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has a wide array of 
ideological perspectives when it comes to the, the judges there. We drew a pretty bad panel on this one. We're, we're very optimistic that we're going to get, that we're going to be able to convince the entire Seventh Circuit Court to take this on banc. Uh, frankly, uh, Judge Hamilton, who wrote the dissent, he's not someone we typically see on the, on the law enforcement side on cases like this, and even he felt uh, pretty strongly, uh, as you can see from his dissent, that this case didn't have the right decision at the lower level. So with him and combined with, um, we, we only need a handful of the conservative judges on the panel, and we think we can, we can get this set straight. We need to put an end to this once and for all for Teresa Halbach's family. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Attorney General, let's just, just for people who don't, who don't quite understand the procedures, the, there are, I, I believe by my count right now, there, there's nine active, what are called active judges on the Seventh Circuit. This was a, a two to one panel decision. One of the options that you have is to ask for a rehearing and bonk, which means you ask for the entire court, you know, all of the active judges to hear the case. And do you anticipate that that's going to be your next step? Yes, that, that's the that's the easiest way to get this resolved in, in any kind of an expedited way. Now, the United States Supreme Court also does take up habeas corpus cases, and now we're going to have your listeners wondering again what are these legal terms, but it's, it's a way for a defendant who's been convicted in state court, they have exhausted all of their appeals in the state court and lost, and then they get this one last, kick at the cat where they can go to the federal court and say, how about you guys second-guess the state court for us? And, well, that's what happened here. Um, the Supreme Court sometimes takes these up and issues summary reversals, and they do it pretty often when they feel that the lower court's gone too far. The federal courts are not designed to replace the judgment of the state courts. They're only supposed to act to release convicted prisoners in extraordinary circumstances where they conclude that the state courts have violated that defendant's rights. This this just doesn't go there, and um, we, we think we're going to have some success either getting the Supreme Court to to take a summary review of this or get the uh, entire Seventh Circuit Court to take it up. But it's, at some point in time, you're going to have to make that choice. You either, If you ask for a rehearing and bonk and it's denied, then you can still appeal to the Supreme Court. Am I correct right. in that? Okay. Right. I think the first step is, is try for the en banc review by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals because they can move typically a lot faster. The Supreme Courts, um, um, I'm not sure if they're in summer recess or they're heading into summer recess. Next week. Next week, I think, yeah. Um, I'm not going to see this till October. Let let me ask you this, Mr. Attorney General. Um, One of the questions a lot of people have is, what happens to Brandon Dassey now? Now, the the order um, says that the state has 90 days to either retry him or this order becomes effective within 90 days of receiving a mandate from the Supreme Court. Will Brandon Dassey, is he likely to be released during this process that you've just been describing? Well, we've been successful in the past in convincing the courts that while various appeals were pending, that um, it's necessary to retain him in custody, that the what he is what he was convicted of in the state court is such a serious crime that it'd be dangerous to have him out. Mm-hmm. So, the, would, am I correct? Would the process be if if they if pending these further appeals, um, what would happen is 
Dassey, through his attorneys, could go and petition the court for some form of bail or some form of release, and then you'd have a, a chance to respond to it. Is, is that what would happen? Yes. Okay. Um, I read the the opinion, again, in, in great detail. And I guess one of the things that also struck me, beyond just the, the, the Dassey prosecution, a lot of the language that was used appeared to really call into question what I would describe as common investigative techniques. Are you concerned at all about the precedent that this this ruling, if it was allowed to stand, might have for affecting interrogations in Wisconsin and Indiana and Illinois, uh, period? Well, absolutely. I mean, we always have to be worried that when the court looks at what what law enforcement does on a pretty regular basis and calls into into question, you know, they've they've made conclusions about the the nature of Brendan Dassey uh, in terms of his capabilities and things that we don't think were supported by the by the trial record at all. Um, so. Absolutely, because now you could put law enforcement in a position where they're they're not going to be able to solve other cases because you have this precedent out there that other ju- that lower court judges would rely on. Um, uh, Brad, I, you started off th- this conversation. I saw in the statement you put out uh, again. One of the things you were mentioning is how difficult this process has been for. The family members of Teresa Halbach, which sometimes I think gets lost in all the hoopla and the drama of making a murderer and, and the, these appeals and stuff. Um, you know, how how does the family deal with this and how concerned are you about the impact that all this has had on the surviving family members? Well, this is what happens whenever we have a case that just never ends. And this case has had a, had a lifespan longer than most. Um they, they need closure. They need to not have to every day be reading this. And something we we have advised them and we frequently advise uh, family members of of crime victims is don't look at the blogs. Don't look at the comments that follow newspaper articles because it, it, they're typically uninformed and frequently vicious, vicious um, language used in there that we really tell them to stay away from those things. It, it can be very hurtful. This is this is a tremendously troubling thing for her family to keep enduring. And Teresa Halbach did nothing wrong, but um, the un, uh, the, under any circumstance you look at, what happened to her was absolutely brutal and um, something that unimaginable to any of us in our day to day lives that that, some, that that kind of evil could happen. So the bottom line: y- yesterday's decision, from your perspective. Um, as the Attorney General, is not the final word. You will continue to pursue the appeals on this until your appellate rights are exhausted. Yes, and, and you, as you know, Jeff, we when a case gets assigned to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, you they do a, a random collection of judges that are going to hear your case. We drew a bad panel on this one. We We were worried when we saw the identity of our panel that we would face this kind of outcome, and it came true. We're going to try to get this before a balanced court that uh, we think we have a lot better chance of from. Brad, as long as I have you, let, let, let's switch gears a little bit. You were um, in the news earlier this week, not just for what we talked about earlier this week for the um, redistricting lawsuit going to the Supreme Court, but also um, you, together with the Attorney General out of West Virginia, are, are leading a coalition trying to get the, the EPA to essentially preserve 
what has been a traditional role that the state has in protecting our, our water sources. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, we're in a new role now. The last the last two years of President Obama's um, presidency, we were we were very very busy just fighting to hold the federal government at bay, trying to get the courts to to stay implementation of regulatory rules. I think most of your listeners will recall when President Obama warned us all that if he can't get stuff through Congress the way he wants it, he's going to use his pen and his phone. And what that meant was he's not going to follow the regular rules. He told us, I'm, I'm going to do executive orders. I'm going to pick up the phone, tell my administrative agencies to do my bidding because Congress won't cooperate with me. Well, that's not the constitutional way, and we've been very successful, wildly successful, the last two years of his presidency, stopping implementation of rules. The laws of the U.S. rule was stayed from going into effect by the by a federal court, and and now it's been put further on hold. We still had the the merits case that, for your listeners, there, there's the case that will decide who's right or wrong ultimately. But then there's also a side case where the court decides whether the lower ruling or the lower ru- or the rule from the regulatory agency can even go into effect. We won that side thing on the stay, and the merits case was continuing on because you still have to get it resolved, except that the Trump administration's EPA has asked that to be put on hold while they reassess what they're doing. So that's what the EPA is doing right now is is taking a look at what makes more sense uh, for a rule going forward. And so now our new role as state attorneys general is to help advise the administration as to what makes sense going forward um, for preserving state rights and taking care of the environment. So, so, so for people who might not be following this, historically, states, state of Wisconsin, state of West Virginia, have had jurisdiction over natural resources in the states. This rule, the way I understand it, claimed federal jurisdiction over pretty much any body of water in the state, including streams or or 100-year floodplains or or water in roadside ditches that the feds were saying, we're, we're going to be the ones to take control of this. Is that pretty much what this order did? Yes. You know, the federal constitution is designed to give most power to states. The federal government can only intervene when they can make an interstate nexus, an interstate commerce nexus that gives them an in. When it's something that's contained completely within a state, they really don't have authority to get involved. Um, What they did when they changed the definition of of what waters they have jurisdiction over at the EPA, they got involved in things that you'd face a, a... a subdivision, uh, a person who owns a home in a subdivision that needs to put a culvert in front of their home doesn't just have to get a DNR permit and a local permit. They'd have to go get a federal permit. This will bottle up things forever. The costs will be enormous. Um, you know, there's going to be a, lawyers, a lot of lawyers who will make money off this, and I don't object to lawyers making money, but not when it's wasteful like this. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of chuckling. I'm trying to imagine the typical homeowner or the neighborhood association. Hey, we're going to put this culvert in, and, and now we, we've got to, we've got to go to the federal government to get the EPA to approve us putting this culvert in. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's my how long it'll take. Yeah. yeah. Well, right, it, it's just mind-boggling. Hey, in any event, Brad, I know you're extremely busy. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. I appreciate the update on uh, the Dassey case. Thank you, Jeff. Bye. Okay, that's uh, the Attorney General of the state of Wisconsin, um, Brad Schimmel. And uh, I, I give him credit. That's I, I want to acknowledge this. 
I the, the decision by the magistrate judge out of Milwaukee in the Dassey case, to me, was just in, in mind-bogglingly wrong, and there's no way to say it. And I admit I'm very surprised that by a two-to-one margin, this panel, and he's he's right, if you look at the judges, they drew a bad panel, um, came down with this, this lengthy decision. Um, I predicted yesterday, without talking to the Attorney General, and he, he's now confirmed it, that the first step I think that you would take is to go to the Seventh Circuit, ask the entire court um, to hear this. It's called rehearing and bonk. That's apparently what they're going to do first. If, if they either refuse to do it, um, they're, they're then the appeal to the Supreme Court. Sometimes the Supreme Court takes cases. Sometimes they, they don't. But uh, I just, uh, it is important to kind of get, it is important to get closure on this. And I guess one way you could get closure is just by simply continuing to fight the, to, to, you could give up. You could say, okay, we're going to release Brandon Dassey. We're not going to retry him. That, in my opinion, would not be justice. It's 1023. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1025, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. All right, uh, some of the other big news this week, of course, there was a congressional, uh, a special election held, in one held in Georgia, one held in South Carolina. The one in Georgia, Democrats poured in over $25 million in an effort to try to win this seat. It's a Republican-leaning seat. It was Newt Gingrich's seat. But the, the issue was, was Donald Trump. We're going to make this a referendum on Donald Trump, as the Democrats have tried in a number of other races, and it's all failed. And, and now there's, no matter how you spin it on MSNBC, I mean, people realize that, that this, this is not a good type of thing. You can say, well, we came close, but at some point in time, you've got to stop, you got to start winning the, these elections, and they're, they're not, and there's a lot of frustration. One of the takeaways from what happened on Tuesday is the Democrats ran against Trump. This was a national election. The local Democratic candidate ran against Trump. Trump is awful. They had thousands of Democratic activists poured into this district. You know, Trump, 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 Trump. The Republicans responded by running essentially against Nancy Pelosi. Hey, you send this guy, you send the Democrat John Ossoff to Congress, and what you're going to have is you're going to have essentially San Francisco liberal values. And what they found was that was that Nancy Pelosi is even less popular than Donald Trump is. And, and that's, it's, a lot of people are, are kind of coming to grips with this. And there's a lot of people in the Democratic Party who are saying it is time to, we, we gotta dump Nancy Pelosi. We, we have to move on. We have to try to shed this whacked out lefty, that's what we are sort of motto. Or else we're not going to, we're gonna win elections in New York City. We're gonna win elections in San Francisco and Los Angeles. But we're not going to be able to win elections across the country as long as we've got the Pelosi baggage. Pelosi says she's not stepping down. Yesterday she went before the camera said, "Nope, I'm I'm I am not going anywhere. I think I'm definitely worth the trouble." <laughs> I think I'm definitely worth the trouble. Well, if you are a Packers fan, you were sorry to see Jay Cutler go because as long as Jay Cutler was the quarterback of the Bears, the Packers were going to beat the Bears. As long as Nancy Pelosi is the leader of the Democrats in Congress, Republicans will continue to control Congress. She says, I think I'm worth the trouble. Well, I think there's a lot of Republicans that would agree with that sentiment. It's 1028. This is Jeff Wagner.
1035, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I am so very glad to have you with us. Um, like I said, I said at the start of this program that we do not go gently into the good weekend on Fridays, and we've had a B-I-G-T-I-M-E show so far, and we will continue it coming up in about an hour. Um, Tracy Johnson and Susie Falk join me, as we always do, for our WTMJ Week in Review. Some experts say that the commute into work can do more harm to your career than just possibly making you late. How can you rise above your awful ride? John McCure shares the details at 3.50 during Wisconsin's afternoon news. I was, I, I was trying to think back about this objectively, and I'm trying to think about the different, during my, during my lifetime, at least where, where I remember things, I've been trying to think about where there have been transitions of, of presidents from one party to another. Lyndon Johnson, Democrat, Richard Nixon, Republican, um, George H. W. Or Jimmy Carter, Democrat, Ronald Reagan, Republican, George H. W. Bush, Republican, Bill Clinton, Democrat, Bill Clinton, Democrat, um, George W. Bush, Republican, and then George Bush to Barack Obama and now Obama to Trump. So the, I've been thinking about those situations, not one where the same party retains control of the White House like the Reagan to Bush transition. And I, I it, it is. I guess I'm, I'm willing to be corrected, but I think it's been pretty clear that historically, former presidents have not actively criticized their immediate predecessor. I mean, Lyndon Johnson wasn't criticizing Richard Nixon in public. I'm sure of that. Um, I, uh, the first president, Bush, I know, was not out publicly criticizing, you know, Bill Clinton. They just... Bill Clinton, to you know, um, to his credit, I mean, Bill Clinton was out doing all sorts of things, but Bill Clinton was not, you know, he was not actively setting himself up like as a shadow leader trying to attack, you know, President Bush. That just did not happen. And certainly, you know, President George W. Bush, while I know there were probably a lot of issues he had with the Obama administration, you didn't see him on Facebook. You didn't see him showing up on TV. You didn't see him traveling across the country criticizing the Affordable Care Act or criticizing Barack Obama in any way, shape, or form. He just, you know, went about his business. That is historically how former presidents have handled matters. Well, before he was leaving office, that's what Barack Obama said he was going to do. Don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be this public figure, at least with regard to, you know, trying to implement policy and stuff. That, however, has not been how it worked out. Yesterday, yesterday, um, Barack Obama decided to, to take to Facebook, and this is not the first time that he has done this, but he took to Facebook 939 word message where he, without mentioning President Trump, decided to uh, attack him. Um, a scathing criticism of the health care reforms that we talked about earlier with Senator Johnson and that are moving through. Um, you know, President Trump had sent out a tweet saying, I'm very supportive of Senate uh, um, hashtag health care bill. Look forward to making it really special. Remember, Obamacare is dead. To which the former president responded in a 939-word message that the Republican plan 
is not a health care bill. It is a massive transfer of wealth from middle class and poor families to the richest people in America. In other words, the whole class warfare thing that Obama played for eight years. Um, He went on to implore his supporters to speak out against the fundamental meanness at the core of the legislation and, you know, was out there picking a direct fight with uh, President Trump. Now, this is... um, this is virtually unprecedented. Um, and, and actually, I mean, I'm looking at a story, you know, in, in the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Post. Even the Washington Post acknowledges this. This is the way they write it. Um, the high-stakes confrontation is virtually unprecedented in modern times between a former and current, pre- current president. And it runs counter to Obama's own professed interest in receding from the limelight. Just days before departing the White House, he joked that he looked forward to not hearing himself talk so much. And now he's out there, again, trying to lead the opposition to health care reform. All right, regardless of how you feel about the demise of Obamacare, that, that's not the issue that I want to discuss. We've talked about that before. You have the former president who has decided that he's essentially going to set himself up as a shadow leader and inject himself full scale into this debate. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. Historically, you know, the old cliche is children should be seen and not heard. Historically, former presidents have recognized that they have had their moment in the sun and that, you know, they should... They should be seen. You, you show up at you know the opening of your libraries and things like that. You work on your memoirs, but that you don't get yourself involved in the day-to-day fray of political battles. That is not obviously how Obama feels about this. Is he doing the right thing? Do we need to, do you want to continue to hear from former President Obama, or is it time for him to just... Shut up and move on. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I, I will tell you this. I I, I mean, again, I, he has the right to do anything he wants, but I think it is just extremely unseemly. He's had his time. He was not, you know, George Bush had the class, and I'm using that word class, not to criticize him when he was rolling back certain Bush initiatives he had the class not to do that. Obama, Obama doesn't. And I think he I think he hurts his legacy by refusing to back off. And candidly, um, I, I think I think that there's just a lot of people out there, and I, I'm one of them, who are just like, we, we don't need to hear from him anymore. We, we heard from him for from eight years. The torch has now been passed. Other people should, if you want to fight this fight, there's other people that should be doing it. It's 1042. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 946, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Let's start with Melissa in Oconomowoc. Melissa, good morning. Good morning. I was calling uh, regarding your question mm-hmm. and in response. Donald Trump is the one that changed the way that everything is done. He's put everything into the public and does all these tweets. 
you know, when when he changed the whole face of it, that changed the way that we hear from our prior presidents. Prior presidents used to speak with the current president and give their views. But Donald has put everything in the public. So why can't Obama? Well, I guess, I mean, nobody's saying that he, he can't do it. The question is, is it unseemly to do it in that fashion? And and I guess, I, I mean, I understand, look, I, I understand that Trump has changed the rules. I, I You know, I get that. But at the same time, you, I don't remember Bill Clinton criticizing President Bush. I certainly don't remember the last President Bush criticizing Barack Obama. They just, they, they did not view their role as a former president to be, actively involved in ongoing current policy debates. So I guess my question well, is, is that wise? I guess that's the difference, is that, yes, they did criticize, but they didn't criticize openly. The problem is is that Donald Trump has put everything into an open atmosphere, and if you're going to have an op- open atmosphere, they have the right to, to do the same. Well, I mean, So he- it, it's unseemly a lot of the stuff that Donald Trump tweets, so why is it unseemly for prior presidents to put a criticism out if they don't agree? And it, it wasn't a direct attack on. Oh, oh my Trump, goodness! Oh, sure it was. Oh, come on, come on, Melissa. On well, no, come on, Melissa. Um, it, it, there's a fundamental meanness um, at the core of the legislation. Massive transfer of wealth from middle class to poor families. I, I think. I mean, thanks. Well, I mean, look. I, you, do you disagree that there's going to be a transfer of wealth in that way with the bill? Yes, I, I do. I, I okay. do. And, and I, 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 I do. Right but but but, that opinion. but but regardless, but that but see, again, I don't want to debate Melissa. I don't want to debate the merits of, of the bill. I, I want to talk about the fact that the former president. Now, I, I understand the justification you get from the, the people who hate Trump, and I understand lots of people out there is that he's changed the rule. He's does this, so everything is now off is now on the table. Stuff that yes, you you wouldn't have done it before, and former presidents wouldn't have done it before. But now that because it's Donald Trump, we we can do it. Well, I. I, I reject that. I, I think that's an ends justifies the means thing. And again, I'm not arguing that Donald, that, that Barack Obama, Barack Obama can go do campaign rallies. He can do whatever he, he wants. He can decide that he wants to be the opposition leader in exile. He gets to do that. I understand. I think it is unseemly, and I think to an extent it is distasteful. And I, I will also tell you, I, I think to some respects it might be counterproductive. Barack Obama, from an electoral perspective, destroyed the modern Democratic Party. Barack Obama, personally, very, very, um, very, very appealing, won two elections and take nothing away from him. But the personal appeal of Barack Obama never translated into Democratic candidates. There were massive losses. They lost the Senate under Obama. They lost Congress under Obama. They lost how many hundreds of states states and local state houses and governorships. Barack Obama helped the Republican Party become the dominant party that, that it is because People, voters, while they were found him personally appealing, in general, they rejected the policies as expressed by other Democratic candidates. So I don't know that it's necessarily if I were if I were a Democrat wanting to oppose Donald Trump, I'm not sure that I would want Barack Obama being the leader of the loyal opposition. Does he have a right to do it? Yeah. But um, I, I think this is uncharted territory. And this idea that, well, Donald Trump has changed the rules um, because he tweets out things. And he's perhaps more direct than other people. Well, all right, to me, that's just the justification for this. Judy in Milwaukee. Judy, you're on 620 WTMJ. 
I think Obama's showing his uh, lack of class, which he never kept hidden from us when he was in the presidency, and he is missing the spotlight. And it's a very classless thing to do. Mm-hmm. Criticize our president. Oh, uh, Trump is the president. We are living in different times. But technology is a huge, big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess. I mean, I guess I right. I I I think he is missing the spotlight. He is missing the spotlight. Uh, absolutely. Right to an extent, and this is. I mean, it, it's just it's a different. It's just a different role. And I I also look. I understand. Obamacare is his legacy. So obviously he feels that his legacy is being challenged. So I mean I understand the need to be the, the desire to be defensive. It's just that most most former presidents have resisted the urge to get back into the fray. Obviously he can't find it himself to do it. And and I guess that's what I find to be interesting and perhaps a little bit disappointing. He is missing the spotlight. And most importantly, no one's waiting for him to make speeches or paying him money to hear from him. He should go back to the golf course. That's what he does best. Well, thanks. Well, now don't say nobody's paying him money because he he's he's in line for huge, huge payouts for the memoirs and for speeches. He is very, very much in demand, and that's I don't have a problem with that. I, I mean, again, you, you write your memoirs. Historically, though, presidents. Presidents have not focused on ongoing debates. Now, Jimmy Carter is perhaps the exception to that, but I I think my recollection, again, I'm I'm willing to be corrected on this, my recollection is that that Carter's role on the national and international stage came substantially after he left the White House. I don't remember Jimmy Carter leading day-to-day opposition to issues um, that, that Ronald Reagan was trying to push through. I think it was just later on. Um, and again, look, I'll, I'll also be candid. I mean, Jimmy Carter, you know, was not a popular president. He left as being viewed as, I, I think, perhaps the, the most failed presidency, certainly of, of my lifetime. Um, so I'm not sure anybody had wanted to hear from him. Jason in Mequon. Jason, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. I think the correct number is somewhere north of 1,200 seats that the Democrats lost since uh, 08 and Obama's uh, regime took over. Um, I think he just needs to shut up and go away. But well, write, write, hand, your me- write your memoirs, build your presidential library, work on your golf, you know, right. travel across the world. Absolutely. Exactly. But you also got to remember, when's the last time we had a quote-unquote anointed president like he is? And like you said, his key piece of legislation that he got passed or rammed down our throats is a correct term, um, is in jeopardy of being challenged here. So right. I'm sure he's pretty ticked off about that one. Yeah, and, and, and I'm sure there's a degree of ego that's around. And I mean, thanks for And I mean, again, look, I also appreciate that, you know, that, that what. What comes with, okay, it, I understand technically it's the Affordable Care Act. Everybody refers to it as Obamacare. When your name is on it, when that is the signature piece, when that is your legacy, a giant entitlement program like that, I understand it's got a, it's got a sting, especially if you have the kind of ego that Barack Obama has. And by the way, I understand Donald Trump has an ego. You cannot be the leader of the free world unless you have a massive ego. That that's just it comes with the territory. But don't don't believe for one minute that Barack Obama doesn't have a massive ego in his own right. Um, and it, I'm sure it's got to be painful to you know 
talk to your advisors or, you know, watch the cable news channels or whatever he does and, and see, you know, the constant derisive uh, references to how, you know, Obamacare is failing and stuff. So I understand there's the desire that he wants to continue to get back into the fray. But at the same time, um, you know, presidents should be seen and not heard. Just saying. It's 1055. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1057, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in the next, next half hour, we're going to kind of lighten it up a little bit. A, a topic from the world of sports. I call it You're on the Clock. And what's going on with Pokemon Go all before the weekend review? So, not nah, my producer Hondo today and always, you shrugged your shoulders. Well, I've got a story about Pokemon Go. Because remember, um, last summer, that was the big story. All these people descending on Lake Park. Um, we're going to talk about that as well, again, before the weekend review. Now, having, a, having annoyed bunch of Barack Obama supporters in that last segment. Let me just do the other side. Um, for the love of God, won't somebody take away President Trump's phone? Or like, well, I don't want to be a Johnny Depp and like and suggest something, but I mean, or at least, you know, may, maybe suggest, you know, something else to do with your thumbs other than like tweeting. Because, I mean, yesterday, first of all, you, you have the president who created this firestorm a few weeks ago by by responding to James Comey and tweeting, he better hope there are no tapes of our conversations before he starts leaking to the press. And this was a veil, I mean, and this this was clearly interpreted, oh, has he been secretly taping people? And then for days, you've got all this speculation and all the talking head shows, and you've got people in Congress saying, okay, maybe we're going to have to subpoena these tapes and what's going on. Um, and, and the president, for whatever reason, refuses to just address the question directly. Well, okay, yesterday. Now, the first tweet was May 12th. So now, yesterday, June 22nd, six weeks later, he comes out and he essentially says, I did not make and do not have any such recordings. Um, he says, maybe there's some out there, but I don't have them. Well, okay. Again, it's, it's Mr. President. Um, every time you do something like this, it, it is a distraction. You take yourself off message. And we spend days debating silliness. Are there tapes? Are there not tapes? Um, when there, there's apparently never, ever been tapes. Why do you do that? Stop tweeting. Or at least stop tweeting about stupid stuff. If you want to use Twitter to try to go around news media and the mainstream media and communicate about policy issues to the extent that you can do that in 142 characters or whatever it is, all right, fine, do that. But this silliness, this, okay, I'm going to tweet about this or that or the other thing. I'm going to imply that there are tapes when there aren't tapes. Knock it off. It's 1109, Jeff Ratner, 620 WTMJ. Hey, Mike, you know there's cake. Did you get some of the cake? That's why I'm running over there right now. Oh, there's still plenty left. This is actually, it is a, did you get cake, Hondo? You don't need cake today. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, this is good cake. It's white cake with good. It, no, they, they do. Actually, this is this is Brenda and crew. They do this. They, they celebrate everybody's birthdays. So this is like the, I think this is the June birthdays that we're celebrating. And what they do is they, they, they have cake. And, you know, it's very nice. And I actually, I grabbed a piece of cake. Okay. So you're eating, you're, what are you eating? You're eating healthy stuff in there. You're eating cereal. I'm eating cake. You're eating cereal. Hmm. I'm not going to feel guilty. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Um, let's. We, we, it's been a sort of a, a heavy-duty show um, talking about different things. I appreciate um, both Senator Ron Johnson and the Attorney General of the State, uh, Brad Schimmel, joining me. There, uh, 
I am a huge fan of college basketball. It's been a while since I've been to a high school basketball game. But I, I, I mean, I, I like the major sports. I, I love football. I, I love baseball, and and I enjoy basketball as well. I like. Um, just by preference, I, I like college basketball better than the NBA. It's nothing against the NBA. I just I prefer college basketball. And it's been a while since I have been to a high school basketball game. But um, the, the WIAA, and I have been, if you are a longtime listener, you know from time to time I have been extremely critical of the WIAA. But um, yesterday, the WIAA made a, a major change in which the way – Varsity high school basketball games in Wisconsin are going to be played starting in two years. It's the 2019-2020 season. Now, let me back into this. When when I was younger, um, in college basketball, they never used to have a shot clock. And, and I mean, I can remember they, they used, North Carolina under Dean Smith. They, there used to be he'd have the what they'd call the four corners, you know, offense, which is essentially your head at the end of the game and you you hold the ball. <laughs> you, you, you pass the ball around, you hold the ball, you make the other team come out of its zone defense, or they make them try to foul you or whatever. But you just hold the ball. That was the North Carolina the, the four corners type of, of offense, and it resulted sometimes in some incredibly boring and low scoring games. In an effort to try to keep the game moving, what they did in college is they put in a shot clock. And as I want to, as I recall, first it was 35 seconds. Now I think it's 30 seconds. The NBA has a 24-second shot clock. Um, there, there isn't a shot clock in Wisconsin in high school basketball um, until yesterday. The WIAA Board of Control yesterday approved using a 35-second shot clock for varsity basketball games beginning with the 2019-2020 season. Um, This is actually, Journal Sentinel's reporting this, this is the second major change um, in the state in recent years. Back in 2015, the WIAA approved the use of two 18-minute halves rather than four eight-minute quarters. Um, You know, again, in the NBA, the, the games are 12, four 12-minute quarters. In college, it's two 20-minute halves. So WIA approved, you know, changing to, okay, we're going to play two halves instead of four quarters. Um, the idea behind using the shot clock in high school basketball is that it's going to improve the flow of play. It's going to eliminate the holding of the ball that occurs towards the end of quarters. Um, it's, it's actually going to make it a more fun game for the fans to watch and for the players to participate in anytime you bring about change though it gets a um it, it has yeah hondo said yeah it, right now the ncaa uses a 30 second shot clock i think when they first started it was 35 though that's what i think in any event high school now it's going to be 35 in seconds in wisconsin they've they've phased this in over a couple year period in order to you know uh, allow schools more time to get clocks or update the scoreboards, as well as training people to run the clocks. But, you know, I think this is good for the game. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, if, and I know, I know you're, you're, you might be a high school basketball fan that's out there. I, I think, actually, I think this is a good step. I think it's going to make the game more fan-friendly. I think it's going to be better for the players. I just think, in general, it makes it more of an exciting game if you know the ball has to, you know, one team just can't get ahead and sit on it 
and you know wait for people to try to foul you or things like that. I think this is going to make it a much better game. I also think now the technology is advanced to the point where you know this is this is doable. It's not going to be that big a deal. They estimate that it's probably going to cost um, twenty two grand to twenty four hundred dollars for the, these different shot clocks to be put in at, at high schools to the extent they don't already have that technology that's there. I think this is a good idea. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk high school sports for just a minute. WIAA now says we're going to use this shot clock like they use the shot clock in college and like they use the shot clock in the N- NBA. Um, is this is this trying to you know find a solution to a problem that doesn't exist? Or from your perspective, if you're a fan, you're attending the games, your kid's playing in the game, your grandkid's playing in the game, your nephew or niece are playing in the games. Shot clock a good idea? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. I think this is a good move. I think it's going to make it a lot more fan-friendly. It's 1117. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This is going to be an interesting conversation. Um, the in the NBA, there is a shot clock. You've got 24 seconds to shoot the ball. In college, there's a 30-second shot clock. There, there wasn't one up until, well, a number of years ago. Um, high school in Wisconsin, there's not a shot clock. There will be, starting in two years, 35 seconds. Um, 35 seconds, and you have to shoot the ball. I think from a fan perspective, it's going to make the games a lot more entertaining. Uh, if This is a very controversial decision, though. Did the WIAA do the right thing? Let's start with uh, Dane in Oak Creek here on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. What do you think? Uh, well, my son just finished his uh, high school career uh, this last year and ended up where uh, Oak Creek High School averaged around uh, in the 40s uh, uh, offensively, and it was uh, really quite uh, slows down the game quite a bit. Now, this last weekend, uh, my son participated in the All-Star game out in Wisconsin Dells, and they had a 35-second clock for all the high school seniors that right. played there. And it just made that uh, game a lot faster and a lot more enjoyable for the fans. How about for the players? You think your kid, did your son like playing with the shot clock more than he liked playing without the shot clock? Well, I mean, he only did it once. Okay. So it ended up where, uh, I mean, and he'll be going and playing in college, but uh, which will have a shot clock. But right. the bottom line to the whole thing is that, uh, you know, you, you can only run so many offensive sets, and then if the ball doesn't go into the basket, um, you know, right. it's just, it just uh, it makes the game a lot more enjoyable for the fans, and for the most part, uh, the players should be um, enjoying it more because uh, they get more shots up. Um, did you say your son's going to be playing in college? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very scholarship or just walk on or something like that. What? what? Scholarship. Very very cool. Outstanding. Well, congratulations. That you must be very proud. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. Uh, uh, yeah, it was. It was uh, enjoyable the whole process. Uh. So. You must be very proud. That, that's great. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Lamar in Orlando. Lamar, you're on 620 WTMJ. How warm is it in Orlando, Florida today? Right. It's, uh, it's noon and it's 91. <laughs> okay. Well, it's it's 75 degrees here. So this this is this is perhaps the one time I will say to you, I'd rather be here than in a 91 degree heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're stuck with this for the next four four to five months, as you know. So yeah, that's it. Okay. Well, what do you think? Shot clock for the WIAA. This rule is well overdue. Uh, Rufus King High School uh, students here, uh, big general fan. Um, and for those, I went to class '96, and for those of that remember the, the dominant Vincent teams from like what was it like '99, 2000, 2001. And not to say that they wouldn't have been dominant without with this new change, 
But that was their offense. They'd get a, a nice little lead, and they would stall the ball. And we hated it. We absolutely hated it. So this rule, we and for those of us that are in my age bracket that are from the city school, we call this the Vincent. We, we've nicknamed this the Vincent rule. Okay. Well, I do think it's it's one that it, I think that by by requiring people to play instead of just hold the ball, I, I do think it's more likely that the good teams are are going to win. I understand maybe you take a little bit of strategy out of it, but but at the same time. I don't know. If, if I'm going to a game, I'm not going to a game just to stand around and watch somebody hold the ball or get fouled or something like that. That's not. I, I, I want to see the. I want to see the, the players play ball. No, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And it makes so if in, in a game in which you have like let's say a ten point lead, you got two minutes to go, ten points. It makes that that last two minutes more competitive because, like right. I said, again, I don't mean to pick on Vince that they were a dominant school, great great program. But that's what that's what they were doing. It was you just knew, the game was over at that point because they didn't right. install the ball. This forces them to play. Right now, thanks to call. I appreciate it, and uh, thanks for joining us from Orlando. I, I mean, I admit it's sort of a traditionalist. I was, I, I'll tell you. For example, I I was when they when they put the three point shot in the basketball. I was kind of wondering, okay, what's this going to do? But you know what? I think it it is it has definitely changed the game, but it's opened up the game, and I think it makes for a much more entertaining game. I also think it. Um, it, it, you're not necessarily you're not really you're not out of it. You know, if you've got with the three point shot in basketball, teams can fall behind and still come back. Okay, let's get a different perspective. Troy in Door County. Troy, good morning. You're on six twenty WTMJ. Hey, good morning, Jeff. Um, I got I got two sides to this topic, and it's nice to have a topic besides the silly politician topic that we have. <laughs> yeah. Now, now some people are going. I can't believe he's wasting airtime talking yeah, about this, but no, it's fine. I mean, we, we tried to do a diverse I, thing. Yeah. Now, my I note, agree. by the way, my note says that you you officiate high school games. Yeah. I, so I I see this two ways. One, I see that you know the college game is like ten year ten years behind the NBA, and then the high school game is like ten years behind the college game, and eventually, I think it was going to come, but. I do some officiating in high school and watch my kids grow up, and, and I like the personal different strategies that go on with basketball. And I don't, like the previous caller talking about Vincent and stuff, I, in northeastern Wisconsin, I just, we just don't see a lot of that where somebody gets a lead and they just sit on the ball. Um, mm-hmm. It brings out a lot of different strategies, and, and I, I think if I read the article, it's going to be boys and girls, which is, you know, I'm not being sexist here, but there's a completely different type of game Right. One sex to the other. So that, let alone, will be a different uh, topic, too. So, it, you know, I, I see both sides of it because you knew it was coming. Um, but I don't think it's, uh, I don't know if it's one of those rules that we necessarily have to have, but I guess we'll have to live with it. So uh, appreciate your <laughs> info and we'll, we'll listen <laughs> well, to your topic. Well, th- thanks for the perspective. You know, it's, in, I mean, I, 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 there, there are things. See, I still think the desert designated hitter just in the American League is just ruined baseball. I, I just I've never warmed up to that. Um, I think the National League game is so much better. It's so much more interesting um, than, than just the, the designated hitter. I think that's a mistake, and they should go back to just you know playing baseball like like baseball I think was intended to be played. In this particular case, though, I, see, I thought. I always thought that one of the biggest objections to having the shot clock was, again, the cost of putting this in. And I mean, I appreciate there's going to be a learning curve, you know, and there is, there is, it's going to cost a few thousand bucks to put these things in. But in general, I think, I I think it's, I think it's good um, just because it keeps the game uh, moving, really. Steve in Oshkosh. Steve, you're on 620 WTMJ. 
Yeah, I it absolutely. It's it's a great deal. And and you know, like I said to the screener there, you know, it keeps the game moving. But to me the important thing is it preps those kids for college. You know, the majority of those kids are gonna play somewhere in college. And uh it just does does a good job of prepping them mm-hmm. uh for, for that next move. Well, yeah, and I guess I mean I don't th- I mean thirty five seconds is really a long time. You know, I mean it's it's you, you know, you would you would think that you'd be able in 35 seconds. You can come down. You can pass the ball around. You can run your plays. And at that point in time, I mean, I don't think I don't think it's going to. I, I think coaches are going to be able to figure out how to coach to it, and I think the players are going to adapt to it. And I think most of the players are going to probably enjoy playing it more. You know, I think it's going to make it a more fun game for the players too. Yep, absolutely. All right, thanks for the call. Let's Thank see. You. Uh, appreciate it. Let's talk to Gary in Waukesha. Gary, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Okay, my note says that you're an official as well. Yeah, I've been officiating high school basketball for 17 years, and to me, I think uh, think this. I can take it or leave it personally, but I think it's something they're trying to fix, not to fix. I I truly enjoy the the strategy, um, you know, involved in in both parts of the game. Now, just by grabbing the ball on the offensive side and holding it, I mean, you still have five seconds. You can't just stand there, right? And hold the ball, you still gotta move it around. So now you're rewarding, or you're taking away a good offensive passing game to work their offense till they get the bunny layup versus, okay, now you're playing good defense and you gotta take some crazy shot because the clock's going off. Um, so that's the one issue. And then quite frankly, <laughs> the second issue would be, there's going to be some issues with that clock itself and the score tables. Right, yeah, who, like who, who's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, who's running it and, and wh- exactly. or, you know, when are they doing Let me ask this, Gary. You, okay, so you, okay, you've been doing this, for, you've been officiating for 17 years. Um, how, how many teams, is, is it a common practice to sit on the ball? I mean, I, I, I don't watch no, that many high school it, basketball it's games. It's not coming to play that often. Right. The Vincent thing, you know, and that was one of my other points I didn't get to. Um, it does not really happen that often. It just doesn't. With today's game, it, a lot of it is more run and gun and stuff. So it's kind of it's kind of nice, you know. To be honest with the officials, sometimes will sit back and say, "Run the four corners." <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh no, I kind of run and gun up and down the court or something like that. But in reality, I mean, I, I kind of like both sides of it. And now I, I'm just not so sure. Now you're going to have someone taking some crazy shot up, and you you know it, it can go twofold. You know. Got you can it. you cannot reward the offense for passing around, working their offense to have a nice layup, and then yeah. And then you go how, how, how many? How many? I'm just curious. How many games in general will you officiate in a given week? In a week? Yeah. Well, between high school and the kids stuff and tournaments, probably ten. Well, wow. at least. Got it. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I, think, no I, was just, I was just kind of curious as to that's that's. Um, one of my one of my colleagues, um, like umpires, like baseball and softball and stuff, and it's amazing how many games he ends up doing over the course of the weekend. I, I get, I mean, I understand, I understand both sides of this. I understand why it's somewhat controversial. This is one I wanted to do the topic because I have this interest, and sometimes I, I think we, uh, it, you know, I think high school sports gets a short shrift sometimes, and I fully acknowledge a lot of times I am very critical of the WIAA, deservedly so in my opinion. But uh, this time I do think they got it right. It's eleven twenty-seven. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1135, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, if you are internet active, this is the time. Facebook.com 
backslash 620 WTMJ. We have turned on the, the lights in the studio, so if, if you want to see what radio looks like without having to come out to the State Fair, it's the Week in Review. I'm Jeff Wagner, of course, joined, as always, by Susie Falk from Falk Group PR, fresh from a series of meetings, and Tracy Johnson from the Commercial Association of Realtors. Hello to both of you. Good morning. Good morning. All right, back. I was off last week, so we are we are back. Um, let us get started. The big story this week and pretty much every week has been the future of health care in America. Uh, the Senate unveils a bill yesterday, a Republican bill, which uh, w- would reform, not necessarily repeal Obamacare, but would reform it. Um, not a lot of people know really what's in it. I was talking to Senator Ron Johnson this morning, and he's saying, like, well, not so fast. You know, we, we don't want to rush into this. Let, let's start off. I mean, Susie Falk, big picture, does something need to be done with Obamacare, or are we just meddling, and should we leave well enough alone? Oh, gosh, no. We all know Obamacare is, is, is a beginning, but it's not the solution. I mean, we've got all kinds of problems. And I recently was reading a Facebook post from one of my friends said, you know, her because of her, the situation with Obamacare, she's not able to pay for her insurance. The rates are too expensive. She's going to have to go without for months. And she's got some health concerns. So, no, that's not the solution. Um, but I'm not sure this one is either. You know, they, they, some are saying it's Obamacare light. Um, I, I also have heard that it's mean. So I think we need to read it. And I think we need to debate it. I think there will be some concessions made, but I think something needs to change. I'm not sure this is it. I was just saying this morning, one one of my friends sent me a text for the my friend for for their entire life had been insured, you know, in the private market. Mm-hmm. They didn't get employer health insurance, and everything was fine until the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And what happened after the Affordable Care Act was um, you were limited as to where you could get insurance from. Um, you, you couldn't choose networks, you couldn't choose coverage, and they happened to be covered by Anthem, which just pulled out. Got another notice mm-hmm. saying, hey, your insurance is gone. We can't tell you where you can get insurance, but it's going to be gone at the end of the year. Tracy Johnson, do we need to make reforms? We do, and we need to do it quickly. Um, you know, as we see these insurance companies and these systems crumbling before our eyes as we speak, um, do we need to debate it? Sure, let's do it quickly. Um, I think the, that we've been talking about it for a long time. President Trump had a mandate. The legislators in Washington had a mandate. They need to get their act in gear. And I think what what Senator Johnson is doing and Ted Cruz and others who are saying, okay, we're not going to vote for it. Obviously, they're trying to push for more conservative reform, trying to push the dialogue. And I think ultimately, because the two packages from the Assembly and the Senate are reasonably close, at least in theory, giving people uh, more more ability to to have control over their health care. I think it's going to pass, and I think it's it's going to be a good step. I mean, what we started with with Obamacare is the premise that that we need to do everything possible to make sure everybody has health care. And we've we start with that baseline, and now we need to let government create a system in order for us to do that. And and that's what we're trying to do. The debate is, you know, is it the markets that should prevail, or should there be a single payer? It should not and, be a single payer. Well, I'm just saying that this yeah. is this is the conversation we're going to be having for years. And I think this will. I think what's going to happen is this will pass, and I think people's lives are going to be impacted. I would like to know with Medicaid how many people will lose insurance, and I think that voters will speak at the polls, and if they're happy with the way that the new health system is shaping up, 
then you know we'll we'll keep it. But if they're not, if they are losing access to health care, then we'll continue the conversation, so, but, and we what, could be heading down the road toward a single single player. I, mean, I don't. Well, I mean, well, I, I, I mean, single payer wasn't nobody even seriously thought about that back in two thousand ten. Now, I mean, I, I I think if you're in a conspiracy theory, I think some people recognize that this was going to happen with Obamacare, and so now you've got the the single payer. That's three hundred twenty trillion dollars, and I mean, I I see. I, I think the, the fact is, I think. Most people are happy with their insurance. I mean, we, most people either get insurance through Medicare or they get insurance through their employers. So you're talking about a relatively small group of people. And, Tracy, I guess what, what's always bothered me about the Affordable Care Act, I appreciate that you want to give access to health insurance to people who don't have it. Mm-hmm. But we blew up the entire system. And like I said, the example I was using with my friend, perfectly happy, had all these different choices, you know, paid for insurance, and in an effort to provide insurance for X number of people who didn't have it, we've now blown up the system for everybody else. Well, I mean, when you put a mandate out there and you start to say everybody has to be insured for all of these things, you start to drive up these costs. And I think now when, I mean, people are already of the mindset that they need to be involved in their health care. Let them pick and choose the the types of packages and, and open up the marketplace. And so... Uh, you don't need to be uh, having a so 25-year-old the, well, insured for you know doing a mammogram or right, something or, right, like that. Or why should the 59-year-old man have to have insurance that covers um, you know female birth control it's, or something like that? Let me. I have an, a very interesting health um, insurance situation. I have a fantastic broker. I hope he's listening. Dan Hogan. He's an insurance broker, and so he's been consulting with my family. I have my own plan, and he asked a series of questions. He said, "Okay, we'll give you the basic plan, which will cover catastrophic. Right. Then we're going to start layering on riders, and so I'm covered for basically everything. You know, I'm not right. planning on having any babies, so we'd skip the maternity, <laughs> you know, um, package. But but anyways, I feel very covered now. I I'm very fortunate to have Dan Hogan and that counsel in my life. There are a lot of people that don't and are, you know, signing up for plans blindly and they're not so lucky. So, you know, I but the mandates the mandates are not only on the people, they're on the the insurance providers and I think that's where we get into trouble. When you mandate anything, you are going to drive up the costs and you know, right. in in a in a, mar- a free market mandate, instead of letting people be able to pick and choose their different coverages saying everybody these are all the different things. Everybody's got to have the mental health coverage. Everybody's got to have the birth control coverage. That's what you're talking well, about. Well, yeah, and, and that's creating, it's just ballooning the system. And so, I, I mean, I think this is a step in the right direction to give people more flexibility, more choice, to move away from the Obamacare dialogue and, you know, move to something that we can all... Okay, let, let's talk feel. about the politics of this. Oh. In the history of this country, once an entitlement program has been put into place, it's never been yeah. rolled back. Um, is it you? And I, I make the argument all the time that it has been electoral disaster. I mean, Barack Obama pushed Obamacare through, and I, I think it cost Democrats hundreds, you know, hundreds and hundreds of seats, Congress, state legislator, legislatures. If Republicans push even a modest repeal of the Affordable Care Act, will it cost them hundreds of seats moving forward? For, uh, Susie, uh, I. 
think it depends on how this impacts the consumer, honestly. And we'll see what kind of a package we end up with. And I, it just, it just depends. If people, again, are, if they're happy with their health care, if they feel like they're having access to it and they can participate in the system, no, I don't think there's going to be any political fallout. But I think that if people are getting knocked off of Medicaid, and by the way, what's interesting about the Senate plan is that they push back the Medicaid um, repeal until after the election. So okay, people right. will be on Medicaid through the election, which really helps uh, the Republicans. So we'll see what happens with Medicaid. I'd like to see what happens with the budget numbers. The Office Congressional Budget Report comes Hasn't out. Hasn't scored in, yet. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so it's really a little premature for us to be talking about this. Tracy, what's I, the political rollout? I think that I, I don't think that the Republicans will lose seats. I think they were given they were given a charge. I think they're going to create a, a positive narrative, and I think that Senator Johnson and others who are pushing it are. are doing a good thing by pushing the narrative so that it will be positive. This is going to be a better solution. Well, you have to do something because the reality is insurers are pulling out of markets. There's now some states that there's no insurers that are participating in. And in Wisconsin, even though there's some insurers, you're very, very limited in networks. I mean, it, it just the, the idea that you'd be able to choose networks and stuff now, that it's just it's not out there. So I think they have to do something. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, local news, um, big verdict this week. I have been very critical of the district attorney. We'll talk about that. It's 1144. You're listening to The Week in Review. It's 1147. This is The Week in Review. Jeff Wagner, Tracy Johnson, Susie Falk. Topic number two. Um, earlier this week, a jury hands a staggering defeat to Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm. It was the prosecution of uh, former Milwaukee police officer Dominique Hagan-Brown accused of illegally shooting a fleeing suspect. This led to the Sherman Park riots. I have been extremely critical of the district attorney. I didn't understand why they were bringing this case in the first place. I think it was a political prosecution that blew up in their face. Tracy Johnson, um, what's going on with Chisholm's office? Oh boy! I, I mean, I think exactly what you're saying is, you know, trying to 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 be politically correct uh, in a lot of ways and to try to, you know, cover all the bases. I mean, I just want to commend the jury. I think for for making a brave and courageous decision. Um, you know, I think they made the right decision. They looked at the evidence. They looked at the facts. And you know, of course, they they can't take into account that this guy was a goof, right? I mean, he was dismissed from the police force, um, but he did do the right thing. Um, I'm disappointed, though, in the family uh, who, while they called for peace and the community to come together, immediately filed a civil suit and said, you know, I'm going to take advantage of this situation. I'm going to get a million dollars. Where were you when your brother, when your son was making the decision to take that gun and run from the police and make make bad choices? Right after a series of other bad decisions, too. I mean, he didn't have the most lengthy series of criminal convictions, but he'd been in trouble uh, quite a bit. Um, he was charged in one case with like witness intimidation that um, they had to dismiss because the witnesses didn't cooperate. Um, Susie, what did you think about the prosecution? Well, it was interesting that I think that it went faster than I thought it would, the whole case, honestly. And I do really appreciate the fact that it was a tough situation until you realize that the expert witness, you know, said the guy did the right thing. And he was by the books. And that's when I turned. Honestly, I wasn't sure. I was doubting and until I heard the witness. And so 
I do think that it w- at the end of the day it was clean, and I think the right thing happened. I'm very pleased that calm heads prevailed and there was no you know uproar in mm-hmm. Sherman Park, and I'm grateful to everybody that remained calm in that. So justice did prevail. John Chisholm, you know, I don't know why he felt that, especially when Flynn said he saw the evidence. And, right. he and how much did that cost our community well, to go through that process? 35000 and counting. Well, right the, o- well, the other thing is, I mean, it sends a very clear message to Milwaukee police officers, any, any law enforcement officer in Milwaukee County, that I don't think yeah. that the district attorney doesn't have your back. If it becomes <laughs> a politically charged situation, um, look out because, I mean, Chisholm's thing, well, I've got this videotape. I'm going to put it out there and let people decide. I don't think that's what prosecutors do. Now, the other aspect that people are reluctant to talk about here is unlike in some shootings, there was not the racial component here mm-hmm. because it was an African-American police officer and an African-American, you know, suspect sure. victim. Um, I, I do want and I, I'm glad everything was calm. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if you change that around a little and the dynamic might have been different. I don't know. I I bet it would be a little bit different. And I mean, I, I hate to say that. saying that, but that's I think. Yeah, I, I think it would have been different. There was not a racial component to this shooting. But it, but I mean, I think this is becoming formulaic. I mean, like you said, there are a couple other times that the district attorney has brought these cases forward and they've been they've been right. they've gone very quickly. I mean, the evidence is yeah. clear. You know, this this was cut and dry and. But, you know, the police the, officer did the right thing. I'm glad for the cameras. You know, yeah. we didn't have well, that, cameras a couple years ago. Well, yeah, and you know, I, I've always made that point, too. I, I think as a general rule, more often than not, much more often than not, body cameras and dashboard cameras will justify police mm-hmm. behavior. I mean, I mean, the example is that lakefront shooting, you know, from the other sure. night that's still under investigation. You see that dashboard camera and you see the guy driving the van and trying to elude police and heading at the, the, the sheriff's deputy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at that and it's you get a pretty clear description, at least my opinion, mm-hmm. that it's going to come back as being a clean shooting. Okay, um, yesterday, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in a very controversial decision, two to one, says that uh, the Brandon Dashley conviction should be overturned. I had Attorney General Brad Schimmel on the program about an hour and a half ago. He is going to continue to appeal, asking first, I think, for a rehearing in front of the entire Seventh Circuit, and then maybe to try to take the case to the Supreme Court. Um, should should we, we just let sleeping dogs lie? Should they give up the appeal? Should they free Brandon Dassey? Susan. Yes, let him go. Please let him go. I, 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 those were leading he, questions that they asked. He only, mur- I, we, we he only, to, he only murdered we, and raped a woman. We, let we, her go. We, ta- let we talked go. about this before. You know what? He was coerced into making that confession. Okay, he he had the brain of a teenager, and he's got he's got learning d- dis- disability. He should not be he should not be in prison for that. Well, if he was coerced into making that confession, and if he was coerced into a, being an accomplice in a in a murder and Rape murdering and, that right. lady and, yeah, and burning her body, mental yeah. health care. Then I mean, okay, but if he problems. goes out, here's the deal. If he goes out, he is a target for anybody else who wants to, you know, help. Brendan Massey is not a victim. The only victim here is Teresa Halbach. And I guess I'm frustrated Mm -hmm. that nobody, uh, the the whole making of a murderer crowd doesn't see that. I mean, that's what the victim, he confessed to about as brutal a murder as possible. And I think, at least my opinion, Schimmel needs to do everything he possibly can to keep this guy in prison. Yeah, we talked about this before, and quite frankly, I was trying not to watch that show because I found it to be an embarrassment. So you guys are following this much more closely than I. You know, topics came in late last night. I brushed up <laughs> on it quickly this morning. And you quite didn't fr- want to get Brack drawn no, back into I, that. Thing. I saw the guys, you know, when he was quote unquote confessing, and it looked like the kid just wanted to get to his video game and get the hell out of that 
three-hour interrogation and that those were leading questions. I mean, that is all, that's all I'm basing my decision right. on. Okay? I think Brad Schimmel needs to do everything he can to make sure that this guy stays in jail. It's a, it's a terrible precedent and to set. I mean, talk about videotape. I mean, we, we, we have the tape. A decision was made. He killed this woman. He was sentenced, and he should pay the price. So... That's, that's the final word on that. Okay, when we come back, we've got so. our. <laughs> well, that it, it is going to be you know proceeding, and uh, I just you, you do wish there could be some sense of closure, but it, it Schimmel's going to be appealing, and I agree with you, Tracy. I think that's the right thing to do. When we come back, our right stuff award. Stick around. It's eleven fifty four. This is the week in review. <laughs> It's 1157, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Scafidi and Bill Stat coming up. Before that, it is our Week in Review, our Right Stuff Award winner, Susie Falk. Yep, the calm heads that prevailed in the wake of the Seville Smith shooting decision this week. I talked about it earlier, but a special shout-out to Seville Smith's family who pleaded for peace and unity this week. You no, know, Whichever way the decision came down this week, the family had every right to be upset. They lost a son, no matter who was to blame for that. It was a horrible thing to have happen to them. So, But they had the clarity of mind and the love for the community to urge for a peaceful resolution. So. Tracy Johnson. All right, my Bright Stuff Award goes to outgoing McWanthingsville Superintendent Damon Means. He'll be going going on to take a position as the role of superintendent in Clark County, Georgia. Um, I personally am grateful to have worked with Damon Means on a community forum um, up in Mequon where he led some significant and substantive changes. Um, he also had the courage to work on a reform program with MPS with County Exec Chris Abley. Uh, he was a strong advocate for equality, education, and opportunity, and I think he's going to do great things in his new home. He's always had the right stuff and i wish him the best i disagree with both your right stuff awards this week <laughs> but 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 that's okay but you get to do them uh, mine is to um u.s open organizers what an incredible event um wisconsin really put its best foot forward all the volunteers all the officials all the visitors everybody who came and spent money and enjoyed wisconsin i know they're going to be coming back so um U.S. Open, maybe 2027, back at Aaron Hills. Um, it was a great experience for everybody. Congratulations to the organizers. You have the right stuff. It's 1159. This is Jeff Wagner. You've been listening to The Week in Review.